Brian's going to start that music over, and I want you to listen to it for a minute. You might even have to get your groove on. Go ahead. A little louder. Uh, on the ninth for concert, that was some of her music. If you haven't heard her, uh, man, she has a great voice and just uh, so soulful. Uh, tickets go on sale today. They're ten dollars. Um, they actually went on sale yesterday, and I bought eight tickets. And uh, I bought eight tickets because uh, my daughter works at a place called Sister Pie, and she's told me more than one. Yeah, if you've been to Sister Pie, she'd woot louder than that. Um, she's told me more than once that the ladies there love listening. Uh, to live Liz Vice, so I bought some tickets to give to her, to give to them, to bring to the concert. Uh, and that's what we want you to do. We want you to buy extra tickets. We've tried to make them as, as affordable as we can. Uh, just think about who you would like to bring. Let's just uh, fill the house. And uh, the cool thing is she's agreed uh, to lead worship for us Saturday night, and then the concert happens after that. And then she's also going to lead worship for us that weekend on Sunday morning. So we're in for a treat. Yeah, that is very cool. Very generous of her. Uh, so again, tickets are $10, uh, buy them at the back there, and uh, let's just sell out today and bring a whole bunch of people, okay? Hey, uh, one more thing, Pizza with the Pastors today, and I think it's at 5.30, I got this wrong yesterday, can somebody please tell me what time it really is? Oh good, 5.30, I got it right today. Uh, 5.30 uh, this afternoon, we'll meet in the cafe, it's just a chance for you to meet uh, some of the, the pastoral team and for us to meet you. We really don't have a big agenda other than just to chat for a few minutes and uh, get to know each other and have some pizza. But the deal is we need to know you're coming so that we're sure we have enough pizza. So you just stop at the information counter right after you buy your block of tickets and let them know uh, that you're gonna be coming to pizza with a pastor. We would love to have you there. Hey, uh, if today is your first day at Grace, um, I feel like I sort of need to apologize. I don't really feel like I need to apologize, but I sort of do. And the reason for that is we're teaching through uh, the book of Colossians. That's not what I'm sorry for. Um, but we are in a particular place in Colossians uh, where we're gonna have to look at a pretty difficult passage. Part of the discipline of teaching through a book of the Bible is we gotta teach through all of it. And uh, there's sometimes things in the Bible where we have to stop and, and think, well, what did the writer actually mean here? And so this happens to be a pretty controversial passage, but, but my encouragement to you is stick with me because I think by the end of the morning, uh, you're gonna know what the writer was saying and it becomes much less controversial. I was talking to Pastor G, the guy that did the announcements up here uh, this week, and he said, this is one of those passages that people use to try to discredit the Bible or to take shots at the Bible. And it's just, it's just one of those passages that we're gonna deal with. It's difficult, but I have no doubt in my mind that God has something uh, for you, and he certainly has had something for me this week as I've prepared this sermon. So my prayer for you this morning is that you just have ears to hear. My prayer is that you wouldn't take offense before I even get started, that you wouldn't shut down in listening, that you would stay with me through the end of the sermon, and uh, that you would just have an open mind and an open heart to hear what God wants to say to you. So are you with me? All right, so open your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 18. I want to remind you that we love it when you check in on social media. If you are a Facebook person, a tweeter, I'm not sure that's a word, but if you're a person who tweets, feel free to tweet. Do whatever it is you do. We love to tell the people out there uh, that God is doing something in here. Um, I've been challenging uh, the church for a while. If we can get 100 people to check in or post or tweet, 
this weekend, then I will write a personal check to $100 to SOAR Detroit. So you might want to take out your phone right now and just all check in, and then I'll be on the hook for 100 bucks. But we'd love for you to let people know. Hey, there's a few important elements to biblical interpretation. For us to understand the Bible, there are certain disciplines that we have to apply to it. And one of those disciplines that comes into play uh, really in a big way this morning is the, is the idea that we need to know what the context of a passage is. Whenever we take a passage of scripture out of context, when I talk about context, I'm talking about the literary context and the situation or social context. When we take a passage and we just, we just pull it out, we can sometimes force that passage to mean things that it was never intended. So a good example of that is Philippians 4, which we hear all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, some people use that passage as some kind of superhuman strength sort of passage. But if you go back and you read it in context, what Paul is actually talking about is that he can be content no matter what God is, whatever situation is in. It's, it's a passage more about endurance and commitment and contentment than it is about superhuman strength. Just because you know Jesus, you can't fly. You can't jump over a building unless, of course, he decides he wants you to. But so I can do all things through Christ's strength in me is one of those verses that we pull out of context and sometimes make it mean something that it didn't mean. Context matters. So both what's written before, what's written after, even the context of all of scripture comes into play. The best way to interpret scripture is with scripture. So we have to look at the whole of scripture and not look at just individual verses and we're gonna see how that comes into play today. And then the situation cultural context has a huge impact. So if we don't know what was happening in the day that it was written, if we don't really know why a particular letter or a particular passage was written to a person or a people group, then we, we're gonna struggle to make application. Now, I would say if you don't know what it meant to the original hearers, then you're not gonna know what it means to you and I. So situation and cultural context have a huge impact on how we interpret the word of God because context changes the meaning of words. Even the same words can mean something very different in different contexts. I don't know that I've ever seen anything that brings this more uh, to life than this Allstate commercial that I want you to see. And you're gonna have to look close. Is this my car? State Farm knows that for every one of what? those moments, this is ridiculous. There's one of these. Is this my car? What? This is ridiculous. This can't be happening. This can't be happening. Oh, it's happening, sweetheart. Oh, it's happening, sweetheart. Shut up. Shut up. Ah! That's why State Farm is there. What a day. With car insurance for when things go wrong. What a day. But also here with car moms <laughs> to help life go right. State Farm. Right? Same words, exactly the same words. If we were just reading those words and we didn't know the situation, we could imply two very different things. So you can see how context makes a difference. So we're going to see that as we unpack this passage. Both the literary context and the cultural context play a big role in helping us understand uh, what Paul is saying, the writer, but just as importantly, it helps us to understand what Paul is not saying. So with all that, let me read Colossians 3, starting in verse 18. And you'll see why it's controversial right as I start. 18, wives, submit to your husbands as it's fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. We all like that part, don't we? Yay, some simple applause there. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, the word there is slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. For wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter four, verse one says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just pray that as we unpack this passage of scripture, that you will help us to make application in our own lives. That with all of this cultural context, we wouldn't just assume that this is written for somebody else in some other day, but that we would know that there is something in this passage for each person in this room to walk away with. Lord, I pray that people would leave different than they came because they've interacted with the living God, that we wouldn't be content with playing church or checking a box, but that we would be actively engaged in the transformation that you wanna bring into our lives, making us more and more and more like you. In Jesus' name. All right, so let me start by putting this passage into some literary context. We've been walking our way through the book of Colossians, right? And, and Paul, the writer of Colossians, has just got done telling the reader to, that they need to take off their old self, right? He says, take off your old self. And that old self, he says, comes with all kinds of vices. And those vices were sexual immorality, greed, evil desires, idolatry, uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying. He's saying all of that is how you used to live. And then he says, but now, because as you have said yes to Jesus, you are a new creation. You are actually transformed into something completely new. And when you are transformed, you need to put on, this is what we talked about last week, your new self, right? And the new self comes with, a, with all of these virtues like compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, right? And, and the fact that we can then extend forgiveness to one another, what kind of forgiveness? The same kind of forgiveness that Christ extended to us, right? There's this beautiful picture of two uh, very uh, at odds with each other, right? The old self and the new self, completely incompatible with one another. When we put on the new selves, our lives are marked by love. He has also just written in our passage last week, so we put this in the literary context, that in Christ, there's no Greek, no Jew, no circumcised, no uncircumcised, no barbarian, no Scythian, no slave or free, but Christ is in all and in all, Right, so we are one. It's what we talked about last week is all of the social and political and all of the markers that tend to divide us are torn down in Christ. We don't stop being male and female. We don't stop having ethnic heritage. What he's saying is in Christ, it is above all of those things. And in Christ, we are one. We are actually theologically a mosaic. That's what we talked about last week. Pretty powerful stuff. Galatians 3.28, which is really a, a parallel verse to this. Interesting enough, Colossians, Galatians, and Ephesians all have some very parallel writings. Makes sense because the same guy's writing all three. And he says in, that in Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There's no male, no female. For all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, if Paul had been consulting me and asked me, I would have told him, I don't think you need to put that other stuff in there. This is a good place to end, right? This is a happy note. We're all one in Jesus. We're all happy, very kumbaya, right? Like this is great. So why bring all of the controversy between wives and husbands? Why talk about children and, and fathers? Why talk about masters and slaves, right? And so you could say, well, maybe he just needed a better editor, but I'm pretty sure he had a pretty good editor, right? The Holy Spirit. So, so it's in there for a reason, right? And so we got to ask ourselves, well, why is it in there? What's the purpose of, of adding controversy? Right after he got done saying there's no slave nor free, why talk to slaves and masters? Well, the reason it's in there is because he wants 
the people who are reading the letter to make application for the letter. He just got done telling them, take off your old self and put on your new self. And the hardest place to put on your new self and live it out is in your home. The hardest place to be Christ-like often is with the people you spend every hour, every day with. Our family tends to get the worst of us. The people that we work with tend to get the worst of us because they're seeing us in our ups and they're seeing us in our downs and we begin to take advantage of one another. So Paul is saying, hey, here's what I want you to do. And I want you to do it in the hardest environment you can in your home. And this just happens to be what the home looked like in the first century. So he's addressing the culture that existed in that century and saying, this is what it's going to look like if you're going to put on your new self in your home. The question is, when people look at your lives, when, when, let me ask you this way. If your spouse or your kids were to say, what are you like? Would they say that you are gentle and kind and loving and full of peace and patience and gentle? Right, because that's what he's saying. If you put on your new self, that's how you would be described by the people who live with you and work with you, okay? So it's important to see that Paul is confronting the cultural context of the day. It's written to an existing group of people who live in a particular social structure, and he's telling them how to live out this new self in that context. And as you look more closely at the passage, you begin to see that he is radically confronting the social structure, and he's doing it in a brilliant sort of way. So in, a, in our context, when we read it, this seems like it's over-the-top, patriarchal, very oppressive, but in fact, if you can step back for a minute and know what the culture was like and know what Paul is calling people to, which I'm going to explain to you in a minute, then you're going to see that this is radically moving the people forward. First, we have to recognize that Paul is super intentional in the way he writes this and in including both parties, right? So he has three different groups of people. So he talks about husbands and wives and parents and kids and masters and slaves. But every time he talks about it, he talks about both parties. That in itself is our first clue because in a society, in a culture where women and children and slaves weren't even considered people necessary. They were considered possession. Even for him to address them and giving them a, a, a dignity and giving them personhood was a pretty radical shift. So the first thing we have to understand is by writing it the way he writes it, he's already including them as a having a role in good relations within the home. So that's the first thing we have to see. It's huge. And so he gives them personhood. And then the other thing we have to do when we read this passage is we have to read those instructions together. So if you read, wives submit to your husbands, and you don't read in the almost same breath, same thought, and men love your wives, then it breaks down right away because it feels like it's a one-way street. Well, what do you mean? How come it's just this one thing? In all of these cases, he's speaking to both parties and saying, this is your responsibility. If you want to have peace, if you want to have, get along with each other, if you want to move forward in your new selves, then both parties need to own what they need to own. Okay? Make sense? So we also have to keep in mind that the best way to interpret Scripture is Scripture. We have to keep the whole of Scripture in mind. So if you think about this one where Paul says to the husband, hey, husbands, love your wives. If you go to uh, Ephesians 5, he actually says, husbands, you are to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. 
right? Another parallel verse. If you go and look at that and you look at Colossians, you'll see the same writer. He's kind of using some of the same thoughts, but he goes even further in Ephesians. And, and there's no question in my mind, he is saying the same thing to the husbands in the city of Colossae and Colossians. So remember, he's not writing a political letter. He's not trying to undo all of the broken political structures. What he's doing is trying to help people to live out their faith in Jesus in the context of which they live. So the challenge he gives to husbands, to love your wife. You know, in fact, he's actually telling them to submit to their wives. He's saying, husbands, you need to prefer your wife's needs over your own. You need to prefer your wife's desires over your own because this is what biblical love does. This is what it means to lay down your life for someone, which is what Jesus did for us, which the husbands are called to do. Let me show you this in scripture, right? Paul writes again in Ephesians 5, right before he, he goes into the husband and wife things, he actually says, submit to one another, right? So we already have this command in scripture that we are to submit to one another. No out clause. It doesn't say unless you're married. It says submit to one another. And then if you think about it in Philippians 2, he actually describes what it looks like for us to submit to one another. The biblical way of love and submission, Philippians 2, 2 through 4. For if Paul again is writing, he says, make my joy complete, by being of one mind, having the same love, being united in spirit and purpose. But listen to this, do nothing out of selfish ambition and empty pride, but in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should not look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. There's no out clause, right? It doesn't say unless you're married, right? And what Paul is saying is just so you know, the hardest place to apply Philippians 2, 2 through 4 is gonna be in your home with the people that you live with every day. But this is what it means to love one another. And here's the deal. In a culture where women were objects of oppression, where women were actually considered possession, calling the husband to love them sacrificially was incredibly radical. In this society, the, the first century, marriage was really a business arrangement. It was arranged for the purpose of helping to establish better business practices. It was usually an economic reason for it. There was some kind of a political reason for it, all kinds of reasons for marriage, but I can tell you love was not one of them. And so even to tell the husband to love his wife, and in essence, telling him to submit to his wife was radically moving the ball forward. In a, in a society where the person was an object of possession, this would have been shocking for them to read. So he's saying to the husbands, love your wives. He is still, just so you know, husbands, the command still applies to us. You are to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. You are to consider their needs above your own. There's no clause, right? No out clause that says unless you're married. So the question is, why didn't Paul just say, husbands, submit to your wives? Well, he did. He just was very careful in the way he said it. If you go to Ephesians, right, he says, submit to one another, and then he explains how that's gonna look. And here, he says, wives, submit to your husbands, and husbands, love your wives, which is really saying the same thing, but he didn't say, husbands, submit to your wives, because he knew if he'd written it that way, the letter never would've got written, in the, written read in the first place, right? The people would've rejected it because it would've been so radically out of the box, that wouldn't even have been a term that they would've been able to put in their minds, so he tells them to do it in sort of a, back sort of way and saying, look, I'm not going to tell you to submit. I'm going to tell you to love your wife the way Christ loves the church. I'm going to tell you to love your wife sacrificially. I'm going to tell you to consider your wife's needs above your own. So you can see he's using language that the people can read, the people can accept, and it doesn't get rejected. He's just being brilliant 
in the way he writes. But he is, make no mistakes, he is pushing the culture forward. In a place where women didn't have personhood, where they were considered objects of possession, this would have been incredibly radical. A couple other quick observations about the wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives. Um, when we read this, and I just want you to hear this, the minute you put your focus on the other person in this situation, the relational gig is up. So if you are sitting here thinking, I wish my husband could hear this, you miss the point, right? Or if you're saying, you know, I would love my wife the way Christ loved the church if she would just submit to me, right? This is what we do. Let's just be honest. This is what we do. We look to the other party. And so, so what, what you need to do is you need to do what you need to do, right? And you need to let God worry about what the other person isn't doing. But the instructions are pretty clear. The, the, what, what we're being commanded to do is perfectly clear. The question is, are you going to do it? Don't let yourself get caught up in how the other person isn't holding up their end of the bargain. The model is Jesus, right? Who, yet while we were sinners, died for us, right? That's, that's the model that we have to follow, right? Be of one mind like Christ. That's what Philippians is telling us. Okay, women, you're called to submit to your husbands. Husbands, you're called to submit to your wives. You're called to live them biblically, and that means submitting. But there's a difference. If you look at the passage, uh, wives are not called to obey their husbands, but the children are. And I think that's important because he expects a different sort of relationship between husbands and wife. It's not an authoritarian, do it my way. I'm the head of the household. If you don't listen to me, you're in big trouble. That's not what he's saying at all. But he is saying something very different to the kids. Look at verse 20 and 21. It says, children, obey your parents in everything. And everything's pretty important. If you're, a, if you're here and you have parents, pay attention. Obey your parents in everything for it's pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Remember, it's a two-way relational street. If you want to have peace in the home, if you want to put on your new selves, if you want to have this dynamic, awesome relationship, it's going to take two to be a part of it, right? So it says that the children are to obey their parents, right? And the parents, they aren't supposed to provoke. Now, the passage actually says, fathers, do not provoke. But a lot of your translations, I think even if you have an NIV, a lot of the other ones actually say, parents, do not provoke. That's probably closer to the intent of the passage. In this day, with the head of the household the way it was, the father was the one who had to do all of the discipline, did everything. But in today's culture where we share in that, here's what I want you to hear. You're not off the hook if you're a mother. When it says do not provoke, you can just put in there mothers and it'll apply. So you don't get to get a pass because it says fathers, do not provoke. So children, you got to obey. That's pretty straightforward, right? We all kind of know what that means. Do what you're asked to do when you're asked to do it, right? Don't break the rules of the household. You honor your parents by doing what they ask you to do. We should get more of an applause when I'm saying all this. You guys should be excited about it. I love the fact that that command, that command, you know, honor your mother and father comes with a promise. It says in Ephesians 6, 3, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment. It comes with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may be long lived on the earth. Those are two good promises, right? Things are gonna go well with you. Things do go better when you listen to your parents. And hey, just so you know, if you're a child and you're in this room, uh, you have to obey them even if you think the rule is stupid. How many times did I hear my kids say, well, that's just a dumb rule. <laughs> live with it, right? That's just part of it. So children, obey your parents. But what does it mean not to provoke your child? This is a fascinating thing. If you uh, look at the original word in the Greek, it's translated so many different ways. I'm not sure I've ever seen a word in scripture trans translated so many different ways. And what that tells us is there's a little bit of 
of fuzziness as to what exactly the word means. So we're going to show you on the screen. So the version that we read here at church is the English Standard Version. says, do not provoke your child. The NIV, New International Version, says, do not embitter your child. Uh, the New Living Translation says, do not aggravate your children. Uh, the New American Standard says, do not exasperate your children. The International Standard Version says, do not make your child resentful. And my favorite, because I have no idea what it means, the Amer Aramaic Bible in plain English, which is an oxymoron. You can't be Aramaic and plain English. It's one or the other. I don't know what it means. But anyway, it says, parents, do not anger your children lest they lose heart. So provoke, embitter, aggravate, exasperate, make resentful, anger. And I read the list and I think to myself, I am guilty of all of those things. At one point or another in raising my four kids, they have been provoked, embittered, <laughs> aggravated, exasperated, all of those things. And so I began to ask myself, well, what does it really mean? Went back and looked at the original word. And here's the deal. I think the, the key for us is the original word actually means to stir anger, right? And it's the stirring that I want you to put your attention on. It's that staying in it longer than you need to. It's that riding your kids when they do something wrong longer than they deserve. It's that never letting up on them. It's this picture of, for lack of a better word, nagging, right? Let's just be honest, parents. Sometimes we nag our kids. It's staying with it too long. Sometimes what we need to do is we need to tell them what they did wrong. We need to tell them what the punishment is. Then we need to move on and allow them to deal with what they need to deal with. So the question I began to ask myself is how do we avoid stirring anger in our kids? How do we avoid unduly provoking or exasperating our children? So I came up with uh, Parenting 101, three tips on how you need to avoid exasperating your children. I'm pretty sure this is going to become a book. I'm going to write it soon. The first one is always parent in the fruit of the spirit. Fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. If you started every interaction with your kid and said, okay, am I being loving right? Is there joy here? Is there peace? Am I being gentle? Is there self-control? Things would go better, not only for you, but for your kids. So what I've had to learn is there's sometimes where I need to not move into father mode, punish mode while I get my fruit together, right? Because I'm a little too unfruitful right now. And I just say, okay, we'll, we'll talk about this later. But I, I know that if I talk to you right now, it, it's not going to be gentleness and self-control. So until I can feel gentle, and self-controlled, I need to just let that go past, right? So first you have to parent in the fruit of the spirit. And this isn't just with discipline, this is all the time, right? Sometimes we wonder why our kids are so angry when all they see from us is anger and rage. They're just mirroring back what they see from us. The so second tip, second 101, allow your children to be who your children are. Sometimes we expect our kids to be great athletes, for instance, or straight-A students, and God just hasn't designed them that way. Often, often we are forcing our kids to be something we want them to be, but not what God has designed them to be. So if you have a child that God has made an artist, but you really wanted to raise a doctor, you might have some conflict because you're constantly pushing them towards whatever it is that a doctor needs to do, whatever a doctor needs to know. When God has made them in just this over-the-top creative artist personnel, you better pay attention to whom God has given you and their unique gifts and talents and allow God to let that blossom, even if it doesn't fit what you were hoping you have. If you were hoping you were going to get an artist and God gave you an engineer, 
right? And you're constantly trying to make your engineer be an artist. Now, I'm not saying engineers can't be artists. I don't need any emails correcting me on all this. I'm just <laughs> using this as a teaching point. I get it that God is creative. People can overlap in their things. But you can hear what I'm saying. Sometimes we're putting all kinds of pressure. And that's where a lot of our discipline comes in because they're not doing what we want them to do so they can be what we think they're supposed to be when God never intended them to be that thing in the first place. And we need to back off. We exasperate our kids when we force them to fit a mold that God never intended them for to fit. And most of the time, can I just tell you, that's about us and not about them. Because we're embarrassed or we want something for them so that people will see, oh, look, my son's a doctor, whatever it is. It's more about us than them. Third, treat your kids in the same level of grace and love that God treats you. Um, I learned along the way... Uh, that it was a good question for me to ask, especially when my kids were disobedient. Uh, they seldom were, but in those rare occasions when they were disobedient, um, I would ask myself, well, how does God deal with my disobedience? Right? How has God dealt with me? And am I going to deal with my kids in a similar way? Now, I have to tell you, I had to learn to grow into that question. And the older kids got a, um, they're going to need more therapy than the younger kids. <laughs> They were the practice kids. You know, the younger ones got a little better dug than the older ones. But here's the deal, and I want you to hear, hear this so clearly. Church, parents, listen to this. This is, this is so important. Our image of God is always rooted in our image of our earthly father. Always. There is no exception to this. I am telling you, there is no exception to this. So my dad... Uh, my parents are both first-generation Jesus followers, so I'm incredibly grateful that they brought Jesus into our home. Um, but my dad came home every night, uh, provided for us economically well. I mean, we were never rich, but we never wanted for anything. Uh, he was home every night. Um, I'm over 50 now. I have never had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with my dad. He just doesn't engage. He, he, whether he's incapable or unwilling, I'm not really sure. Even when I've tried to have it, it's just not something. So guess what? My image of God was always there. Never really struggled with faith. God's always there. God's a good provider. He's going to give me what I need when I need it. But I don't know that he's ever going to talk to me. I don't know if God's ever going to engage with me. I had to relearn who God really is. So here's what I want you to hear. And this is why I'm saying this. There is an enormous responsibility on you as fathers. And if you are a single mom, it's okay because God says, I will be the father to the fatherless. So that's the promise of scripture. And your, the way you treat your kids still helps to shape how they see God. But our kids' image of God is shaped by how we move towards them, how we love them, how we discipline them. We have to, have to ask ourselves, am I loving my kids the way God loves me? Am I showing them the Father's love and the way that I move towards them? It's so important. So let's think about how radical this is. In a culture where children were the possession of the head of the household, do you know in that culture that if a son or a daughter was disobedient, the, the father could have that child killed with no repercussions? As a matter of fact, they probably would have been celebrated for keeping the social structure in place. That's how much of a possession kids were. So when, when the parents are told to, to honor their kids, to listen to their kids, to not exasperate their kids, to, to treat them well, There's, this is radically changing the cultural context of the day. Let me keep moving for the sake of time. 
another common household relationship. And we just have to realize this is how this, the houses were, were built in that day was the idea between slaves and masters. And the ESV that I read, it said bond servants, but it's just the same word translated slaves everywhere else. So I think they were just trying to make it feel a little easier or something. But uh, verse 22 says, bond servants obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, and chapter four, verse one, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. I wish that this wasn't in here. Um, I hate talking about it, to tell you the truth. Uh, but here's what I want you to hear. If anyone ever tells you that the Bible endorses slavery and uses a passage like this to support it, uh, they are just flat out wrong. Amen. This passage is addressing how to live at peace in a broken world. And part of the broken world was the existence of slavery. Slavery is wrong. Any form of slavery is wrong. Now, well, there is some distinct differences that we can talk about how slavery in the, the ancient world and it was different than what we know of slavery in the American way. But I would tell you that most of the time when we do that, I think we're just saying it to kind of ease our own conscience because what we do know is even slavery in the ancient world, people were oppressed, people were seen as objects of possession, people were sexually abused, people, these were people that weren't even really seen as people. So there's all kinds of, of exploitation and dehumanization that, that happened then just like it happened in our culture with slavery. So there's some key differences, right? In the first century, sometimes the person that was a bond servant, a slave, went into a contractual relationship with the head of the household because they didn't have the economics to support themselves. And they would say, hey, can I work for you? And if I work for you, I will live with you and you'll feed me. But the minute that happened, you were under contract. You were a possession of the head of the household. So just keep that in mind. Big difference. The other big difference is that it wasn't necessarily geared towards any uh, particular race. So as we see, saw in America where there was a particular people group, the Africans, that were, that were dehumanized. And in the ancient world, Jews were slaves, Egyptians were slaves, uh, just basically anyone who decided to go into that contractual relationship. So it wasn't one people group. So it was a little bit different, but wrong nonetheless. So the question is, why doesn't Paul just write Masters, release all your slaves. And why didn't he write, slaves, get together and revolt, right? Get together and fight, start a rebellion. Because nobody would have read the letter, right? He is addressing the cultural context of the day. And here's what I want you to hear. He knows that if I say that, nobody's going to read the letter. But if I say what I'm about to say, I will begin to break down the system that's in place, but I'm gonna break it down from the inside out. It's a fascinating thing. So when he writes to the slaves, do what you're supposed to do, right? Do what you're asked to do. And don't just do it when people are watching. He says, don't just do it with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He's saying, look, don't be disingenuous. Do what you're supposed to do when you're asked to do it and do it as if Jesus himself is the one who's asking you to do it. What's a good application for us? Your job. Right, if you are under any kind of authority and someone is giving you a job to do, do that job to the best of your as if Jesus himself were the one telling you to do it. Jesus is your boss, Jesus sees you, so do what you need to do. And then Paul writes something in verses 24 and 25 that any slave reading this would have, it would have rocked their world. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. Do it as if you're serving the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer, He'll, he'll get paid back for what's wrong because there's no partiality. No partiality in a 
political system and a social system where you are an object of ownership and there's no partiality would have rocked their world. You know what he's saying is God sees you. God sees you. God cares about you. God knows that you're important to him. God loves you. So do what you need to do as if you're doing it unto God and let God worry about the master, the slave owner, right? It's amazing movement away from the social system. And he turns his attention to the master and he says, you need to treat them the way you want to be treated because you too have a master, right? How do you want the master to treat you? That's how you need to treat those who are under your control. And he says, you need to feed them. Uh, you need to treat them justly and fairly. The word fairly could easily be translated just equal. You need to treat them as an equal. If you're in authority over anyone in your workplace or whatever, this is the standard. Treat them the way you want to be treated. Treat them with love and dignity. Treat them as a person, not an object to be used. Right? If the slave owners or the business owners were, were to read the whole letter of Colossians, what they would see, the context is that they got to love their slaves, they got to love their coworkers with all of the virtues that are in Colossians, right? With compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness. It's a radical shift in the social structure from objects of possessions to persons of dignity to be loved. Another quick, quick word just about the lunacy that the Bible endorses slavery. This letter of Colossians, uh, it was written by Paul while he was in prison, uh, but it was sent back to the city of Colossae in the hands of a guy named Onesimus. Onesimus is a slave. He's a runaway slave who stole from his owner, from his master. And he ends up meeting up with Paul and, and Paul disciples him. And, and Paul ends up writing these, this letter, but he also writes a letter to Onesimus' master, Philemon. And those two letters are brought together back to the church in Colossae. And I want you to see this because it's amazing what Paul says about this runaway slave who was also a thief. It's a one chapter book in, in the New Testament. And in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, he's talking to Philemon, uh, for my child, Onesimus. First of all, he's not a slave. He's Paul's child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he's indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending him my very heart. It's pretty powerful words, right? Spoken over somebody who was an object of possession. He's my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that you might serve me on behalf during my imprisonment in the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness not, not be out of compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that he might have him back forever. Listen to this, verse 16. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a brother, especially to me, but more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you consider me a partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you in any way, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I think the most powerful words in that, as I've read it over the last week, is to the slave owner, Philemon. You need to change your paradigm. This is not an object that you own. This is a person who I love with all of my heart. He's become a son to me, and I'm sending him back to you. And I want you to receive him, not as a slave, but as a brother. And this is what I love. He says, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And it just made me think about how often we say in our situations, uh, we are brothers, we're brother and sister. 
I think sometimes that's just a religious jargon. Right? In the flesh and in the Lord, meaning it's all-encompassing, it's real. It's not just a religious position. We are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one. It's not just this theological thing. It's the reality of it, of it all. It's amazing. This is radical Christianity at its best. This idea that in grace we love people. It's a vivid picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ setting people free. So you may not know this, but a lot of scholars believe that the first bishop of the church of Ephesus, and Ephesus was one of the central churches in the spread of the gospel in the first century. It became one of the most important churches in, in, in all that happened in, the, in this, the establishment of Christianity. So the first bishop of the church of Ephesus just happens to be a man by the name of Onesimus. And most scholars believe it was probably the runaway slave and thief. Now, we don't have any way of knowing for sure, but there's enough evidence to say same location, same region, same time frame. We have his name here. We have him named there. It's an amazing picture of the gospel. That's God's view of slavery. Let's set him free and then make him the bishop, right? Pretty amazing stuff. The hard part about this passage is all of that cultural context can sort of let us off the hook, right? We don't have slaves. We're kind of... Don't have to deal with this, but there is so much application for us because really the underlining message of, the, of what he's saying is put on your new self and do it at home, right? We can all own that. You need to put on your, own, your, your, your new self and you need to do it at home and you need to do it at work. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Wives, love and honor your husbands back. Children, listen to your parents. Do what they ask you to do. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Bosses, Love your employees. Employees, work as if Jesus was your boss. Imagine how much better the world would be if we just lived out this code of ethics in everything we do. Hallelujah. I'm gonna pray for us, uh, and then I just wanna invite you down for prayer. Amen. I just, when I... Uh, came home on Monday, I think it was, I said to Meg, um, I would rather not preach this weekend, knowing the passage that was in front of me. Um, but I can tell you, um, by the end of the week, I couldn't wait to share what God had shown me through this passage. And we just need to stay in the word. We need to let the word interpret the word. There is so much application for us in what seems like a passage that doesn't apply to us at all. So let's just uh, apply the word to our own lives. Lord, I pray uh, that you would allow us to put on our new selves, that you would show us how in the spirit of God at work with us, put on our new selves and to be uh, marked by love. First of all and foremost in our homes, charity begins at home is absolutely true. But also in our workplace, just help people to see Christ in us. Help us to be one as you and the Father are one. I just pray that you would um, touch the hearts of people who have heard this passage used as a passage of oppression, where the church has gotten it wrong and they've used this to legitimize slavery or oppression of women. Lord, would you forgive us of that sin? Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. name. Amen. Hey, we have a group of people that meet before the service and they pray for you. And they often ask the Lord 
uh, what is it that people need to hear today? What is it they might be dealing with? Uh, and two words came to mind this morning. One was discouragement. Some of you are here and you're just discouraged. We would like to pray for you. And the other one was some of you um, have been entertaining thoughts of suicide. And we just want to tell you, come down. Let us put hands on you. Let us pray for you. Let us minister to you. And do not leave here if either of those. If you need prayer for anything else, our prayer team will be down here. Matter of fact, prayer team, if you want to come down now, that would be great. God bless you. You have a great Sunday afternoon.